Well, uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark still. Um, as we've been saying uh, the last several weeks in particular, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he immediately begins to confront false religion. And uh, that takes a lot of different forms. It works itself out in a lot of different ways, and we see uh, yet another version of that this morning as, um, as a question of taxes comes up, of all things. Uh, so, Mark 12, starting at verse 13. And they, that is the high priest, the uh, scribes, and the elders, sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to him, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, this one's about politics, so let's pray. Father, we know that you are the king over all creation, and we know that you have given the rule over all the earth to your son, and we know that he is returning. So even now, speak by your spirit so that we might have wisdom to discern how we're called to live. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start talking about politics. There's no way to make people happier or more upset in the church. Uh, you know, if, especially, you know, if you start taking positions, and I know this firsthand, it's easy to get people to pat you on the back and tell you, thanks for being so courageous. You're absolutely right. And then the next person comes up and tells you about how naive you are and how you just haven't read the right people. Uh, now, I'm not looking for pity <laughs> in the midst of that. I just mean simply to recognize the fact that in my experience, there is nothing that has been more divisive to the church, at least in recent years, than politics. It really is about the most divisive thing. I used to say it was parenting. I now think it's politics. Parenting gets second place now in divisive issues. Anyway, um, that's, a, that's a sermon for a different time. I'll get myself in trouble then. But uh, Jesus puts his hand, well, he's, you might say his hand is forced, but Jesus so perfectly touches on this question of what politicized false religion looks like. And this is important for us to understand because it is like we are living in a house with a slow gas leak. And it's as if everybody's kind of slowly losing their mind. And we're all just hoping no one lights a candle. 
and blows the whole place up. And this is not on, you know, this is not particularly unusual. That's important to understand. That the question of sort of politics and religion have been an issue forever. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go, but it certainly was a time, an issue in Jesus' time. And you see what goes on here is that two different parties come to ask this trap of a question to Jesus. We'll talk about them and their interests in a moment, but they come and they flatter him. <laughs> Jesus, we know you don't care what anybody thinks. We know that you don't, uh, you're not swayed by how anything looks. You teach the way of God. You teach the truth. Of course, they don't believe a lick of what they're saying. And Jesus sees right through it. I don't even necessarily know that there's anything divine happening there in Jesus' knowledge. I mean, I think it was probably pretty obvious on the face of it what they were doing, but Jesus sees what they're doing. And he says something fascinating. He opens his response by saying, why put me to the test? If you know the Bible, you know that phrase a little bit, but I wonder if you've noticed that that phrase in the Old Testament is only ever used with reference to God. Do a little word study. You'll find it's only ever used about God. In the New Testament, it's only ever used about God and, of course, Jesus. So that even in Jesus' opening response, there is a warning that we are stepping into a dangerous zone. It's not that he's being trapped. It's that those who are asking it are in a dangerous position. So we're going to (laughs) need some help talking about this. We're going to see that there are two problems and, of course, a solution to dealing with politics. One problem is cynicism. The other is idolatry. And, of course, the solution is a gospel-shaped responsibility. That all sounds very easy, doesn't it? Two problems, one solution, right? Cynicism, idolatry, and instead responsibility. Well, let's start with cynicism. Uh, this is the Pharisees. Now, we, if you know the Gospels much, you know the name of Pharisees a lot. And we talk about them. They come up quite a bit. The Pharisees were not a well-defined group. You see, it was the scribes and the chief priests, the, the elders, the people that had official positions that send these two groups together. Uh, rather, the Pharisees are just the super serious Christians. They're the people that take God's law seriously. And they're really trying to systematically live it out in everyday life. They're not necessarily professional religious people. They're just people who take it really seriously. And they, are, they don't love Rome. I mean, this is probably not a mystery to you, but they don't love the Roman authorities. Uh, there were, of course, people who were on the extreme end. There were zealots who were freedom fighters that lived in the wilderness that would, when they could, pick fights with the Roman authorities, and they would not pay the tax. Uh, The Pharisees probably mostly did, but in a very begrudging way. Um, Like, maybe perhaps many of us pay taxes. Uh, They wanted freedom from the Roman oppressor, this foreign government that was over them. And it is true, you know, it's, it's helpful to understand here then what Jesus is doing when he asks for a denarius. 
Uh, a denarius is a particular coin uh, that they had to pay this tax with. And on it, and you can look this up online if you want, to look up a Tiberian denarius, because it was uh, Tiberius who was the emperor at the time. Uh, and you can find these coins online. And on the coin was written, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, that was his name, son of divine Augustus. He was the son of Caesar Augustus, the very first uh, of the emperors. Uh, so that was his name. He was the son of one that he had declared to be divine. Uh-oh. And then you flip it over, and it declares that he is Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest, or the, the highest priest. Priest of what? The priest of the worship of Rome. Rome itself was personified as a goddess, Roma. Uh, So Caesar declared himself to be king. This is an important point not to be missed. You see, what the the Pharisees are noting is that this is an artifact. I mean, the, the very denarius itself is an artifact of idolatry. And they don't want anything to do with that. I mean, I hope we can be a little sympathetic with that position. Especially, the, you know, if you call yourself a Christian, I hope you can see that how important that is. However, what's so important to notice here is that Jesus, while he sees, Jesus sees it too, still recognizes the goodness of government. Right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The famous line that ends the story. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, you know, his face is on the money, give it back to him. Um, but give to God what is God's. Jesus is also wrenching from Caesar's hands the claim to be divine. Uh, the claim to have a right to be the high priest of real worship. Jesus is setting a division there. But you notice it's, it is a rebuke to these Pharisees. Because what they want Jesus to say is that Rome is an evil empire, and therefore you owe it no allegiance. That's what they want from him. And he won't say it. You know, partly because, and this is one of the things we've got to see over the whole scope of Scripture, is that God doesn't view government as a bad thing. I mean, from the very beginning, literally Genesis 1, God is being portrayed as a king on his throne. Who creates. And then he creates little kings in humanity, made in his image, to rule in his place. And yes, and we will, we will think more about this, yes, evil enters the picture. And, and government be, is corrupted. But however imperfect, he still continues to say it's a good thing. I mean, at the end of the flood, uh, Noah is essentially told to establish government, to maintain justice, to restrain evil, to promote what is good. It's a good thing. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. You can look at Romans 13. It's a well-known passage. You can look at 1 Peter 2. These two passages are written by Paul and Peter, 
two of the apostles. What's fascinating is both those, those letters are written in the mid-60s. Um, not the 1960s. Literally the 60s. Um, during the reign of Emperor Nero, who himself tortured and blamed Christians for a massive fire in Rome, who was an early persecutor of Christians. And if church history is accurate, uh, the, the church traditions are accurate, it was Nero himself who ordered both of them to be executed. And that's who they continued to tell Christians to honor. It's, it's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because we don't always like the government. We are urged to be cynical about it, in fact. And the book of Daniel is a very helpful book in a lot of ways as we think about an increasingly post-Christian society. Because the book of Daniel is about Daniel and his friends finding their place in a society where they're a minority position. And they have to figure out what to do. But on this point of politics in particular, it's really instructive because is Daniel cynical? I don't know how well you remember those stories. Is Daniel cynical? No. He serves in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar and of King Belshazzar. And then of Darius, I mean, he, he serves in multiple courts, even crossing empires, with guys who were claiming to be God, setting up idols for people to worship at them. Daniel is not cynical. He knows it is still a good thing. However abused it is, that is still a good thing. It is st- we are still called to love justice. To encourage the promotion of the good and the constraining of evil. And however wrong our officials might be at times, we are still to honor and obey them. I don't know if that was harder for you now or harder for you six months ago. I don't know where you land on those questions, but the point is still the same. We're called to honor and obey them. We're called not to be cynical. We're called to be wise. And there's a difference between cynicism and wisdom. Wisdom sees the truth. It cuts through the lies. But it knows that this is still a good thing. The Pharisees wanted to run away from all that. And Jesus won't let them. Uh, so I grew up uh, in Southeast Virginia in the 80s and 90s, and you know if if you don't know, <laughs> that was really the heyday of the religious right, and Virginia was one of the epicenters of that. Uh, a bunch of the li- you know religious leader, you know, moral majority leaders, and that sort of thing were all based in Virginia. In fact, the church that I grew up in was just a few miles down the road from Pat Robertson and his compound and CBN and all that, all that stuff. If that, I don't know if that, what that means to all of you. Some of you may be familiar with that. Some of you not. 
But I grew up in the thick of that, and literally everybody I knew in evangelical churches was conservative. Like, everybody. I mean, some were, you know, all the way religious, right? You know, others were a little bit more circumspect, perhaps, but everybody was that way. Uh, Now, in my college years, I I would say I grew uh, to question that, and I think I started to become cynical. And then I spent a summer uh, before my senior year doing an internship with the London City Mission, which is an old uh, mission to the poor that began during the Industrial Revolution, still going now. Um, And I discovered the weirdest thing. Almost all the evangelicals in England were what we would call liberals. Now, I mean, it's not a one-to-one correlation. You know, it's, like, it's a different political system over there. Not everything lines up the exact same way. But by and large, they were what we would call at least socially liberal. Now, I'm not saying they were right. <laughs> and I'm not saying everybody I grew up with was right. What I'm saying is it opened my eyes to the possibility that my cynicism was more fueled by the history that I grew up around, our history, the various players involved, then real clarity on what Scripture taught, than what the Bible was actually getting at. And that there actually might be different possibilities for understanding how to arrive or what to do to put that in practice. I don't have it all figured out. Part of moving away from cynicism is actually moving away from that claim that we have it all figured out. Because when everything is just so, I mean, isn't that the great temptation? Isn't that actually what drives us towards cynicism is the confidence that we have everything figured out to a T. And the moment that there's a crack in that wall, the moment there's a tear in that seamless thread, it's hard to keep it all together. Jesus warns us away from that kind of cynicism. And I wonder, are you tempted towards that? Are you tempted to think that, well, if we can't have it our way, or even that we know exactly the right way everything is supposed to be done, as if we all are experts in economics and in foreign policy in educational policy and in infectious diseases. That's a new one. We've added that. Uh, As if we all know all those things inside and out. But Jesus warns us away from it. Maybe we just don't know everything, and that's okay. And maybe what we're called to do is promote what is good and discourage what is evil. Jesus warns us against cynicism, but notice this also. He warns us against idolatry. 
And maybe this one is more poignant because the other people that show up are the Herodians, which I'm sure you know everything about the Herodians already, but let me explain a little bit. Um, that's kind of an umbrella term for a, a coalition. Pro- there's probably a, a lot of varying uh, competing interests within that coalition, but of people that supported the kings that came from the line of Herod. So you know the name Herod from the Christmas stories, probably. It's probably where it's most on your mind. Uh, king Herod the Great was the king when Jesus was born. And he was the puppet king that Rome had installed because the Roman Empire liked most of all to have indigenous leaders that were their puppets in place. They didn't actually like to rule directly over all these provinces. Uh, So they had King Herod the Great over kind of the whole region there of what is modern Israel and Syria and Lebanon and that that whole region. But, But he died when Jesus was still young. And his kingdom got divided up between, all his, between some of his children. And they all got sort of different regions and all that. And in fact, there's a guy up in the north that we actually heard about in chapter 6 who executed John the Baptist, who is Herod Antipas. Um, now, he was up in the north where Jesus lived. But the Herod who had control over Jerusalem had actually been removed uh, before this time. He could not control what was going on, and finally the Romans took direct control. We'll meet the prefect, the Roman prefect that they installed in a few chapters named Pontius Pilate. Uh, But there's still these Herods that are kind of in control. There's still folks kind of lobbying for Herodian local control within Jerusalem. It's a little complicated, (laughs) but it is this kind of group of folks that are pro-Herodian which also means they're pro-Roman. They are just fine with what the Romans are doing and are continually jockeying for Roman approval. That's the main thing you need to know, (laughs) Um, is that they're all for it. Uh, Whatever their interests were, they're also trying to put Jesus in this trap, right? You can either... You, you know, you're a popular teacher. We'd love for the people to be behind what we're doing, so you can either endorse Caesar or make your own foolish choice and not endorse Caesar and see what happens to you. But we know you just entered Jerusalem with all the accoutrement of being the next king. So make your choice, Jesus. That's the position they're hoping to put him in. Uh, and again, you know, Jesus... Answer is so helpful here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Which means, he's like, yeah, Caesar's in, Caesar's in charge right now. Maybe Caesar isn't who he thinks he is. Maybe he's not the son of a God. Maybe he's not the high priest of the true religion. And look, I mean, in all of human history, even to this day, it is true that political power and religious power are often closely intertwined in most cultures. That is absolutely true. And certainly in the ancient Near Eastern context out of which most of the Bible is written, 
uh, there was almost a complete fusion. So if you know anything about ancient Egypt or ancient Babylon or any of those places, the kings were considered to be divine. Now, the, the Greeks and the Romans that were more influential by the time of Jesus uh, were, didn't like to do that. They, they didn't like to call their leaders divine, although you can already see here and what we were talking about with Tiberius the idea that Caesar was divine get, gaining some steam, and it will continue to gain steam over time. But what is going on, though, is that instead of taking the individual, they have taken the social order and embodied it in the divine. So as we mentioned, it was required around the whole Roman Empire that everybody offer sacrifices to the goddess Roma. The Jews were given an exception to this, But they had to continue to you know, pay tribute and, and, give, and recognize the legitimacy of the emperors. So, you can see how weird Jesus' position is. And how weird the Christian position becomes as, as the church spreads. Because, again, if religion and politics are so closely intertwined... But you have this group of people that starts to spread that has no definable place. No singular culture out of which they come from. No social order that, in particular that they consider sacred. They were an anomaly. Nobody knew what to do with them. And over time as they started to grow, the, the Roman Empire starts to think of them as a threat. Because their allegiance to Rome was, well, certainly not what Rome wanted it to be. Now, the story changes by the 300s. I'm not going to do all Christian history here. I'm just going to go through the whole history of church and state in church history. But that all changes. You know, in the 300s, you get a, the first emperor who, be, who becomes a Christian, Constantine, and then there's a bunch of emperors after that. And then, you know, we could do a whole long history of the mess that the Middle Ages is between church and state and the Reformation and all that sort of thing. Needless to say, our own American history has an uncomfortable way of intertwining religious themes and civic themes. Uh, an uneasy vision of America as a place of divine appointment. And it's not worth adjudicating all the situations in which that was legitimate or illegitimate because literally every major public figure in American life has done this. Everybody. And again, maybe some of it is more justifiable than others. I'm not trying to settle that here. I am simply trying to make the point that we really love the idea that the way we do things is God-given. We are no different than any people in any other time in this regard. But I will say that something I think has changed or been changing over the last few decades, that less and less uh, can we assume that Christianity is the default religion in America. And I don't mean that to bemoan it or to celebrate it. I just mean to say that that's clearly a fact, right? The, 
you know, the Bible as a source of our morality has become more and more a matter of dispute. But what that has done, and this is the important point, has made political power increasingly more important. Because we can't rely on being able to come up with an answer between us otherwise. So we need to grab power. One theologian puts it this way, that as the church has faded in the background, the sacred has migrated from the church to the state. No wonder we are told routinely that the next election is the most important election of our lifetime. I mean, I've, have you not been hearing that for the last, you know, five, six elections? <laughs> Every election is. And maybe one or two of them have been. I don't know. But like, they, but like every time, this is what we're told. Because the stakes are so high. Because if we don't get our way, the whole sacred canopy will collapse. The whole sacred vision of our society will be lost. And that is true on the right and the left. Again, the book of Daniel is so helpful here. (laughs) Because while Daniel is not a cynic about government, he knows full well what it looks like when we idolatrize it. Uh, Idolize it, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, (laughs) When we idolize it. If you think back to the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Of this statue, right? And uh, the details of the dream are not super important, uh, but it's this statue which is clearly an idol. And, uh, and Daniel identifies him with the head of it. And Nebuchadnezzar is so happy that this dream is interpreted by Daniel. He promotes Daniel. He gives him all those things. And then in the next chapter, he goes and builds the statue. The statue that got toppled in the dream. And he tells everybody to bow down to it. I mean, Daniel knows what, what idolizing political power looks like in its most stark form. The question is, do we recognize it now? The question is whether we've recognized the danger in migrating what is sacred from the church to the state. I can tell you again, my own experience in this has been that we don't. Like I said, I grew up in, in, a, in a context where everybody was sort of on the religious right. And then, you know, after college and then after serving in the military, uh, Adrian and I moved to Massachusetts, to the Boston area, where everybody was on the left. And, and then, you know, and then ministered there for 10 years after seminary. And, you know, even most of the Christians we knew were on the left. And everybody, people I grew up around, and the people I was around for 13 years in Massachusetts, were wringing their hands about how somebody could be a Christian and think so differently from them. Don't they see? Don't they understand? Don't they know how important this is? 
Don't they know how clear the right choice is? I know we have our faults. But look at the faults of the other side. If there isn't a telltale sign of idolatry, it is explaining away our faults. Of distracting ourselves with how wicked we think the other side is. And so our side must be righteous. This is the question. Is politics a place you get your sense of purpose, of meaning, of significance, of transcendence? Is it the place you, you give a lion's share of your attention? I know we're coming out of an you know, election year, obviously. It, there's a right amount of attention that you give to that kind of thing. Um, these questions are important that are involved in politics. There's a right amount of attention to give it. But we all know what it's like to go down the rabbit hole of reading all the people that we like and getting sucked into that. Here's, is it the thing that you're most passionate about? That's a scary question because we all know we all know people, and I'm talking about in the church here. I'm not even talking about outside the church. We all know people who are so much more passionate about politics and about who you're voting for and about who's right and who's wrong than they are about Jesus. The degree of anxiety and fear and anger that politics brings up is way out of proportion from everything else in their life. Maybe the real question is, what if I ask those things of your spouse about you? Of your close friends? So what then? <laughs> what do we do? You know, this is where we start to see, or we have to keep the whole narrative in mind. These, these guys who come to Jesus, they know that he wrote in declaring himself to be the next king. And they want to know how he's positioning himself to Caesar. And of course, they're going to make their judgments based on that. They're hoping to sway the crowd, and maybe it does work with the crowd. It's unclear. But what they know is that Jesus has claimed to be king. He is laying claim to that. And this is where we have to recognize that the Bible actually does have a very clear answer to us about politics. It may not fit the question we want to ask, like, should I pay taxes to Caesar or not? But it is a clear answer. See, we are tempted, we are sucked in often to the clear answers we get by being, you know, on the right or on the left. We are sucked into those kind of simple answers because you can find the right solution. Someone's going to tell you how to think about it. 
But the Bible gives us a very different answer, though it's a different question. Because the Bible is not interested in separating, if you can listen to what I'm saying, separating religion from politics. It's just talking about a different kind of politics. It is talking about the God who is the king ruling over the world. It is interested in the fact that there was an attempted coup in this world, led by Satan, that dragged us into it. Although the weirdest thing, right? While he sought to thwart God's rule over the earth, God didn't seem very flustered. God wasn't. And though all the world became occupied territory with sin and evil, God never lost focus. And in the context of this occupied world, when the time was right, he entered in. It's no mistake that when the Gospel of Luke tells the Christmas story, it makes a point to point out that Caesar Augustus, who was Tiberius' stepfather, was the ruler at the time, was the emperor, a man who had claimed to bring peace to the world. But the real Prince of Peace was born in at that moment. In contrast to the pretensions that Rome had to make peace over the whole world, God was bringing real peace. And we've talked about, even through the Gospel of Mark, how the driving out of the demonic forces is seen as a kind of taking of occupied territory. The place where it's most obvious is the story of the guy who's demon-possessed, and the demons call themselves legion, which is a military term, right? This was occupied territory, and Jesus drives them out. And his work of healing and all the miracles he performs are restoring the world to the way it's supposed to be. But the enemy is not merely out there, it is in all of us. Which is why Jesus' work is not done merely by a fiat of his power. Instead, the moment that Jesus takes the crown is the moment he dies. It is not a mistake. It is not an accident of history that Jesus ends up with a crown on his head. It is not a mistake that Pilate wrote that he was king of the Jews. Of course, Pilate thought it was a joke. But Pilate didn't realize that what he was bringing about was in fact the rule of Jesus. The defeat of the very last enemy. That Jesus would claim the world back by giving his own life for us. And by taking it up, he would guarantee that sin was broken. That evil would be undone. And even now, even now, he rules in heaven. And when he left, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he has formed an assembly, the church. That's what ecclesia, the Greek word for church, means, is an assembly. An assembly that is of every tribe and tongue and nation. It is slowly populating the world, not to take it by power, but to take it by love. 
And we wait for the return of the king to see justice fulfilled. To see it finally realized. For the nations to be judged. To bring in his perfect and righteous will. For the care of the downtrodden to be fulfilled. For the humble, humbling of the proud. And even now, we are called to work for that. We're not cynics. We do believe God is at work, right? All authority has been given by Jesus. Or it's been given to Jesus, and he's calling us to call on him. I mean, all authority has been given. And yet at the same time, he has not fully revealed his kingship. He has not openly declared it. That's what we're waiting on. This is a different political vision. This is a political vision that is looking to Jesus now in part and then fully to bring what is just and right and good. And for the time being, God in his providence gives us government. And we're called to honor those, and as John, as John prayed earlier, right, to honor them, but only honor them so much as they actually should be. There was a, a letter written in around the year 180 called the uh, Epistle to Diognetus. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. It is, a, it is a Christian author who is obviously dealing with critiques of Christianity, people misunderstanding what it is. And again, this is very early. Uh, this is year 180 or so. Um, and this is, this is part of the letter. This is what he says. Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor customs. That's all the stuff of a national identity, isn't it? For they neither inhabit cities of their own, they don't have their own civic life, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, that is to say a language, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men. In other words, they haven't formed their own political theory to live by. Nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any mere human doctrines, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each has been determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth a land of strangers. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. This is what the Bible teaches about politics. Not to be cynical, but also not to idolize it. To look for the one who is the king, who has all authority, to bring justice, to curb evil, and finally, one day, to bring a complete justice to the world, who is even now at work through his people to love our place, our city, our state, our nation, but not to be fools, to be wise like serpents but innocent as doves. Not to defend some mythic ideal of the past, nor naively to expect a perfected future until he returns. 
but working hard to bless others, lamenting what is evil and unjust, working towards what is good, but most of all, calling on him. Because he is good. And he will bring his goodness with him. So this is how the Bible ends. The book of Revelation. Quite literally the last two verses of the Bible. He who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Father, we pray that you would remind us that you are the great king. You are king, of course, by right as our creator. But you have defeated those who, who tried to claim your power by your love and by the grace of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Give us a clarity that you are in control. Teach us not to be cynical, but teach us not to worship the political either. Instead, teach us to call on you, and as we call on you, to love you first and to love our neighbor for your glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.